Welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm Emma Norton and we recorded this podcast on Gadigal land, land that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode is Red Flag Radio's very own socialist budget reply. Chloe and I got to speak to Ben Hillier, one of the editors of Red Flag newspaper, about Labor's budget, which was released on Tuesday last week. It's a budget that we argue will entrench inequality and continue the one-sided class war in this country. It was handed down by Albanese in the midst of a massive cost of living crisis, a once in a generation attack on wages and soaring profits for corporations and the super rich. Yet the budget contains absolutely nothing that will really alleviate the pressures on workers and the poor. Instead, they have chosen to continue the big handouts to the rich in the form of tax cuts and subsidies. A quick note, our conversation took place on Thursday night after the budget came out, while Peter Dutton was making his own budget reply on behalf of the Liberals. In the name of so-called middle Australians, he attacked the budget both for not fixing the cost of living crisis and for spending money on the poor and therefore causing inflation, something we deal with in the podcast. Importantly, the Liberals have begun a racist dog whistle campaign about immigration. Basically, they're blaming migrants for the extreme housing crisis and cost of living, which, of course, both the Liberals and Labor have helped create. But as we hadn't heard Dutton's speech at the time of recording this, we don't really discuss those points too much or talk about the Liberals. There are plenty more things we wanted to talk about, but I think the conversation we ended up having will be interesting to our audience anyway. And in the future, we do hope to have podcasts that deal with some of these questions like housing, the cuts to the NDIS, the Liberals and the far right. So stay tuned. Anyway, we hope you enjoy this discussion as much as we enjoyed having it. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, my co-host Chloe is here with us. Hi. <laughs> so uh, for today, yeah, we wanted to talk about a few things, obviously Labor's budget, but also um, the context of that uh, as the, the cost of living crisis, you know, massive inequality that's uh, the worst in generations and the historic attack on wages. So yeah, what do you guys think? Well, where do you start? Yeah. Um, <laughs> The figures are everywhere, aren't they? You can look um, at the ABS, every second headline coming out of the newspapers. It's been a terrible couple of years for, for working people in the country. I think at, at the moment we're about, we're more than a 7% down in average real wages uh, and it's still getting worse. We're looking, the, the budget said not till next year are we going to get real wage rises and that's a projection that we still don't know if it'll come to fruition. But by the time it's all over, it'll be 9% down, um, could be more. And, and it depends where you sit in the ranks of the class as well. You know, some people, 7% uh, is an average uh, or a bit more than 7% is an average, but some people be, be hitting, being hit uh, a lot harder than that um, because uh, they, their disposable incomes are already quite low. They don't have a great deal of discretionary spending and, and a lot of the non-discretionary items um, breads, cereals, dairies, um, dairy products, etc., have been going up way higher than the average level of inflation, as has energy, gas, up 26% in, in a year. You know, so it's been a rough time for working people, hasn't it? Um, and that's one of the contexts of the budget. 
And basically no one is getting above inflation wage rises. In fact, wages have been stagnating long before the inflationary crisis um, and they're obviously so much worse now. Um, so it's a situation where if you did nothing in the budget, it would be a massive attack on the working class. Um, and I would argue Labor have done worse than nothing. Um, a lot of the biggest sins are actually not formally in the budget, um, but that's the situation like you know, open class war, uh, working class living standards going backwards faster than they have done for a very long time. That's right. If they did nothing, it's, it's, wor- it's still a major attack. Because I think one of the other starting points, if you think about it, you go back to the last federal election in 2019, which they lost. At, at that point, they had a suite of measures which were going to be revenue raises coming from the top 10% of the population. And when they lost the election, they basically across the board capitulated. So we're not going to touch high income earners. We're going to pass the stage, you know, we're, we're on board with stage three tax cuts. We're not touching the upper middle classes. Uh, ta- superannuation tax rorts, we're not touching negative gearing, we're not going to touch a capital gains tax discount. Um, I think the, the modelling at the last election uh, was that there was, a, there was a 250 to $380 billion difference in revenue over 10 years between Labor and the Coalition. And in, in that respect, uh, I think that the top 10% of households were projected, if Labor had won, their net disposable income was on average going to be hit $12,000. So they were going to go down $12,000 to pay for a range of sort of social democratic measures of the Labor Party. And as it stands now, they didn't talk about it in the budget, but these stage three tax cuts, because um, they keep saying, well, they're not part of this new budget because they're already re- legislated and they claim that they're going to keep them. We'll see about that. But that's a $9,000 uh, increase to incomes of people on $200,000 or more. So you've gone from, we're going to slug people at the top for a bit of redistribution by 12000 to a flip to, we're going to give you, you know, that's a, a $21,000 turnaround for the people at the very top per year. So it's a massive hit and none of it's part of the budget. It's just part of the, the general um, vibe of, of Labor now governing in the interests of those people at the top. And I think it's important to see the overall context as it's, it's class war, you know, one-sided class war. Like these are decisions that are being made by the bosses every time they, you know, negotiate a new EA to make sure that wage increases fall well below inflation. So I think the way it gets talked about is like, oh, it's sad, you know, inflation's going up, that hurts people. But actually these are decisions being made by the bosses and they're absolutely raking it in. The other side of it is the super profits that they're making like just ridiculous uh, levels. I mean, one of the uh, stats that's important is from the Australia Institute's report about inequality that showed that, was it 93% of the new wealth created in the last, in the 10 years between 2011 and 2019 went to the, uh, the top 10%, which is, you know, record highs, uh, basically. Um, and similarly, you know, you've had like gas companies making record profits as well. So a lot of the stuff that, uh, and, you know, maybe we'll t- talk about this a little bit later, but a lot of the inflation as well is not just um, some natural thing that happens in the economy. It's bosses deciding to put up their prices and then those prices are flowing through to workers, you know, having to front up um, higher costs for the cost of living. And to talk a little bit more on wages, um, 
the government, I think, often likes to get off the hook um, when looking at wages. Uh, we're now in a situation where Labor and government everywhere at a state level other than Tasmania, everywhere around the country, there are serious caps on public sector wages. We're actually in a situation now where public sector wages are um, rising at a slower rate than private sector wages. Like this is an indictment on the Labor governments at a state level. And I think the media particularly like to decontextualize the federal budget and uh, separate that off, silo that off from all of the various Labor state uh, uh, government decisions. But if you had Labor at a federal, at a state level, that really wanted to turn things around for workers. Uh, you know, they spent a lot of time when they're out of government talking about how no one left behind and they cared about wages. Um, but actually, the proof is in what they're doing at the state level as well, which is, you know, uh, Dan Andrews had a worse uh, public sector pay cap than uh, Don Paraday did. Yeah, and now they're in power here in New South Wales. They could, they could have just decided as they got into power, we're going to increase wages. Like they can at any point do that with the public sector. It's really frustrating because there, there's a lot of talk of the wages promise of the Labor Party now that they're in government federally. They're like, oh, yes, we have, you know, we're working on this 15% for, uh, for the um, early childhood learning uh, educators. That's the best we can do. They actually have enormous power to increase wages if they wanted to in this country. Yeah, and you, th- you think about how they're, uh, like the way they talk about the public service pay cap, trying to play on the sensibilities of, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the face bureaucrats who get paid too much anyway but we're talking about nurses teachers train drivers ambos etc it's working class people um yeah and as, as you say wall to wall so there's there's no excuses at the moment and, and I, th- I think going back i said that that figure that i mean again it's all just figures that you you chuck in to contextualize but 7% down for the working class on average, and as we say, it's uneven, but 70% up for the 50 billionaires over, over four years, uh, according to Forbes. Well, one thing, I mean, on that line of um, the massive contrast between the rich getting richer in this country and doing very well in the last few years uh, since the pandemic in particular versus the cost of living crisis that the vast majority of the population are dealing with, I wonder what people, what you guys think about the um, claim coming from the media for the days leading up to the budget and since that, you know, this has been really hard for Chalmers and the Labor Party. They're in a very difficult situation. Uh, they have to, you know, manage expectations, uh, that sort of thing. Like, do you, do you empathize with the Labor government, you know, having a tough time having to deliver this budget? I mean, it's got to be rough being in Canberra and being paid so much in the top 4%, I imagine. Oh, no, he'd be, he'd be much higher, actually. Starting salaries are top 4% of income earners. He'd be, he'd be in the top 1%, I would have thought. Um, I mean, they say this, but, you know, it's tough, one, managing expectations. But I, I like the, I like, I don't, I don't know if gaslighting is the right word, but the whole thing about, well, it's, you know, you, you give too much to the people who need it and you'll actually be hurting them because it's only going to stoke the inflationary pressures. But, the same set of journalists that I saw want to get the gotcha moments about whether or not they will indeed really keep their promise and not touch stage three tax cuts. Nobody's talking about the inflationary pressures that those fuckers are going to be putting in when, you, when you're giving $250 billion or more. It's, it's going to be more than that by, by the time inflation is taking effect over a decade. But, you know, you, what is it? Some, somewhere around $250 yeah, billion. Dollars. billion is what I saw for 10 years. 
yeah, let's let's throw that back into the pockets of the rich. Nobody's talking about the inflationary wave that, that that'll cause because it's only a particular type of inflation caused by a t- particular type of person that is really at issue, you know, when it comes to things like the, uh, the Reserve Bank decisions. They don't care about asset price inflation, housing being out of control, stock market being at historic height. Like that sort of inflation isn't the inflation that worries them because they know who benefits from it. It's the other sort of inflation. Um, yeah, you can't give a few crumbs to the poor. Yeah, it's honestly pretty sick listening to just how sympathetic these journalists are to just what a tough job Chalmers has, you know, balancing all of these different interests. And, you know, it's done a really excellent job because there's lots of winners in the budget, this language of winners and losers. If you get $14.6 billion, which, you know, compared to the stage three tax cuts, what they're spending on AUKUS, this is really just what's left over down the back of the couch. This uh, is somehow a sign that welfare recipients are winners. Um, yeah. Uh, and this uh, argument that um, it's welfare recipients who are responsible for <laughs> the inflationary crisis because they actually spend the money they get because they're living in poverty. Um, yeah, I really agree. It's gaslighting. Yeah, well, maybe we should go through some of these measures in the budget that are being lauded as uh, the, you know, part of this cost of living relief package and um, you know, being seen as really helping the vulnerable in our society. So I think the most obvious one is to start with JobSeeker because uh, the increases to this are going to end up being $2.54, I think, a day for a person on JobSeeker. A little bit more if you uh, happen to fall between 50, 55 and 65 years of age, I think. Um, but, you know, just absolutely piddling amounts. $2, I mean, it's like half a coffee in Sydney. Well, yeah, I, I can't imagine what's going to happen to the price of beans uh, because I'm sure that'll be on the business pages when, when this finally does get passed. The roasters, the crisis in the roasting community from the inflation driven by all this. Uh, I mean, what do you say really when it's, it's, it's such a piddling amount? I think Greg Jericho in the, in the Guardian had uh, on budget night the figure that, well, it's, it's so small that people on JobSeeker will go from being 44% below the poverty line to 41% below the poverty line in terms of their, their income. So. It's, it's hard to know what to say when you're dealing with, as we outline the context, which again is sort of missing for everything, this such a tremendous concentration of wealth that has gone on in, you know, in four years, in a decade, in the 21st century, over four decades, it, it, the concentration of wealth at the top getting larger and larger and so many more people struggling, but yet the media narrative fixated on is this too much for, for people who have been going backward decade after decade on this piddly amount that you can't what's the, the figure if, if you're on job seeker and you're single i think it's maybe 0.3 percent of all rental properties in capital cities are affordable for you it's just impossible to live um, without leaning on everyone around you, which is, I guess, precisely the point, yeah? They don't want the, the state, the wealthy, to pay a share to have a population that can survive by themselves. They want to push people who are in dire straits to depend on their friends, on their families. They want to de-socialise social security, put it into the private sphere 
and and make people because by and large it's working class people anyway people to lean on their families and their friends who are also struggling even even if they do have a job so i mean that's these sorts of contexts that they won't talk about because they only want to talk about the particular figures and then gaslight us about the inflationary so-called inflationary effects which may not even particularly exist to be honest Chalmers' uh, big line to talk about what he's doing for renters and in the housing crisis uh, is that the increase in rent um, allowance is the largest increase of rent assistance in 30 years. Um, it's $31 a fortnight. I think probably the average rent increase in Sydney uh, where we are right now is probably a lot higher than that on average. Uh, but if anything, that just tells you what have they been doing for the last 30 years and Labor have been in government uh, <laughs> in the last 30 years. Actually, yeah, that's what this uh, neoliberalism, uh, neoliberal budgets for the last 30 years has produced this outcome. Now we're at a stress point because of the inflationary crisis and what people are being offered is not even making up the difference in you know where uh, prices have gone in the last couple of years. Like I read actually in a Red Flag article um, that the $10 billion housing future fund would not even cover the increase that's gone um uh, on the waiting list for public housing. So if you built all of that, uh, those public housing, that would uh, not even touch the gap in how uh, much that wait list has gone up in the past couple of years. Yeah, one thing as well is that, you know, the government set up these little committees before, I think just after the election. So they had like a um, an inequality one and a, a women one and they made a whole series of suggestions. One of them, which would have been, you know, better than what we've got is uh to raise the job seeker rate to 90% of the age pension to get it closer to actually, you know, meeting the um, the basic poverty line, uh, which would cost apparently $75 billion over 10 years. Again, so always, you know, worth uh, comparing figures like that to the $254 billion at least that it will cost to um, to push through the stage three tax cuts over three years or, or AUKUS or whatever. I mean, Again, these are just really piddling amounts that are, I mean, overall the cost of living um, package is $14 billion. It's just absolutely nothing when you, again, put it back into the context of the rich getting so much richer in the last few years and the poor really suffer, uh, suffering through the inflation crisis. Yeah, to, around $250 billion for 50 people over four years. And then $14 billion for what, 10 million, 12 million people overall when you add, add, add all the people up that are going to get a, a cent here or a cent. Maybe, maybe it's not that many, but in, in the scope, it's, it's, it's pretty large. Hey, you know the other thing um, uh, that I didn't mention that the Labor government has done in this budget, which has also gone by and large unnoticed, is that they have unleashed what has been described by uh, the economics editor at the nine mastheads at Sydney, uh, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age as, uh, I don't know if it's true, but he called it probably, uh, I think he called it the, the, the biggest tax hike in history. And it's the scrapping of the low and middle income tax offset. So if you think again, that more than 7% down in real wages, but av- on average for the working class, um, by this guy's figures, People on $90,000, now they've scrapped this tax offset, um, the low middle income tax offset, people on $90,000 will see a 3.5% hit to their net disposable income in the coming year. So 
If you go 7% plus 3.5, if you're on $50,000, it's more than 2% hit. So 7% plus 2, there's your 9. And real wages still going down. I'm not sure what the historical comparisons are, but this must be one of the steepest declines in real wealth or real incomes for working class people in definitely in generations. But uh, it'd be interesting to see how steep things have gone um, or or how pear-shaped things went in in major recessions, which we we still haven't. And you think about that, we still haven't had a recession. And they're trying to, they're trying to, and they predict that they're going to succeed to in driving up unemployment in, in, in the midst of all this, because that'll help them solve the inflationary crisis, which is hurting working class people so badly that we've got to drive about 150,000 of them out of work by the middle of next year is that prescription. Sounds like gaslighting again to me. You've got it so hard, we're going to have to drive some of you into abject poverty and so you lose your houses because that, my friend, is for the greater good. Mm. What sort of economy do we really have there? And you've got it so bad we can't give you anything. Otherwise, that will also somehow make your lives worse by driving up inflation. So you can't win either way, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, I mean, it's a really, yeah, that thing about the, uh, the lower income taxes because there's all this talk about bracket creep and, you know, we've really got to relieve some of the tax burden for the people earning over 120K a year. Um, but no one's talking about the fact that, you know, overall taxes are actually going to increase for some of the poorest in society. And then you look as well at, um, at uh, some of the other spending that is going on that's not in the budget. Um, I think that's worth raising too, like the, um, the massive handouts to corporations that are not kind of written into the budget but are just happening anyway. Um, so over $50 billion going to uh, fossil fuel companies, you know, a lot of the, um, the subsidies they don't write into the budget because it's not a good look, uh, but, you know, are just ongoing. So, again, I think what we're seeing overall is labor helping this massive transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich, um, just which was happening anyway because of the, the kind of class war across the economy. But they're really aiding that effort, I think. And what you said before about um, the RBA wanting to actually potentially trigger a recession or at least, um, you know, uh, their approach to getting a handle on inflation um, is to just massively decimate the conditions of the working class um, and potentially drive up um, unemployment. Um, Now, I think actually the criticisms coming from the right of the budget um, are Labor's best friend in kind of making them look uh, like they're being more generous than they actually are. So, you know, the Liberal Party come out and attack them for, you know, overspending and potentially um, you know, uh, contributing to inflation because of what the $14 billion like crumbs that are going to welfare. Um, and yeah, I think in many ways, uh, Angus Taylor is uh, the best thing for Chalmers to kind of make him look like he's being really generous. He can get up there and say, oh, you know, we're, we're being compassionate but sensible. That's the kind of line that they keep repeating, compassionate but sensible. And I think that, um, you know, the fact that the entire debate, um, including from a lot of the you know, liberal media, so not just the the Murdoch press, is all about well, the central cornerstone of this budget is like what's going to fix inflation, and by that they don't mean fix the cost of living crisis. They mean get a handle on the economy um, for you know capitalism. Well, one thing that's worth probably trying to uh, to explain 
the RBA, you know, is has been increasing uh, interest rates for the last uh, few months. There have been, I think, 11 rate hikes um, recently. And I think they never really explain what the purpose of that is to ordinary people. But basically, it is to, if not induce a recession, then to sort of dangle people over the edge of one by basically decreasing the amount of money that uh, people have to spend. So everyone else, but ordinary people have to tighten their belts. Um, and eventually that will, you know, uh, slowly bring down the, the, the inflation and, you know, the cost of goods. So basically, we're the ones that have to pay to bring down inflation, even though the whole reason inflation is supposedly bad is because it hurts us and drives up the cost of living. Yeah, that's right. It's a blunt instrument to decrease demand among working class people. As you say, it's a, it's a massive attack on workers because an inflation, I mean, you go into all the technicalities, we don't really want to do, but we know there's supply side stuff that people talk about. It's not a wage price spiral. So there's massively driven by profiteering as well. All, all of the causes of the inflationary spiral are sort of external to what workers are doing day in and day out. But the punishment comes thick and fast for, for working, mainly working class debtors like mortgagees um, who are the, the bulk of mortgagees. And then uh, I think as well it, it, hurts if, it hurts the working class if, ideologically, the fact of inflation is used to say, oh, we can't give you wage rises that actually keep up with this. You know, that, that has been what's happened. The problem is that that's, there's nothing automatic about that. Like we win the wage rises that we actually fight for. And that's another problem which we'll probably get into a bit later. But, you know, there's not enough class struggle on our side to actually um, to, to make up for the effects of inflation by winning above or at inflation wage rises. And, you know, there's very few almost no workers in the economy are winning even close to inflation right now. Yeah, it's a totally rigged economy, isn't it? And it seems to get more, more rigged the more years that pass and the less inclined the Labor Party is to even nominally present itself as... Like, it's, it's trying to present itself nominally as uh, a guardian of the, the disenfranchised in this, in this budget. But by and large, there's nothing for the, for the, for the bulk of the working class there's pretty much absolutely nothing. It's, there's some crumbs for people at the, at the lower ends of the scale. So all the talk is about the safety net, which fits with the sort of broader liberal narrative or the liberal framework, I, I would say, that, that comes to dominate both the, the Labor Party, the Labor movement, but the liberal media itself, which is you've got, the ab, you've got abject poverty and you've got the really hard done by poor, and then you've got everybody else. There's, there's no real question of capitalist class, middle class, working class. It's just really poor people and they deserve this thing called a safety net. And then there's everybody else who really just have to get out and, and make life for themselves and either put up with, you know, the, what the economy's, or what, it's not what the economy's putting out, uh, what the bosses are throwing at them, um, or, or try to get ahead through it, um, join, join the climb to the top. Well, Ben, what you were saying about the whole narrative being, um, the liberal narrative being like there's the poorest of the poor who maybe deserve a few crumbs in the budget, but then there's the rest of it. Even some of those measures, like Labor are giving themselves a massive pat on the back for fixing a problem that they actually created. So 
one of the big talking points yeah, about, point. you know, Labor is such big feminists because they are fixing uh, the problem for single parents, obviously mostly uh, single mums, uh, is that they are raising uh, the single parent payment so that it doesn't get cut off when your kid turns eight. Um, presumably, that's when you shove them down the salt mines. Um, it now gets cut off when your kid turns 14, which is kind of like sticking a knife in someone's back and then pulling out halfway because it was actually the Gillard government who got rid of that, who lowered it down to eight. Um, actually... <laughs> She actually did that on the same day she gave her misogyny speech. So, you know, the Labor Party's credibility to be people who look after um, welfare recipients, look after women, you know, stand up to sexists like uh, Tony Abbott. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government... Uh, that's actually the legacy of Julia Gillard. And I think uh, one of the reports into it that um, you know, Labor set up the committee to look into a uh, crisis of inequality for you know, poor and working class women was that this was the single biggest measure that um, impacted on uh, government measure that impacted on women's poverty. So they've like half fixed that uh, and it's a problem that they created themselves. I reckon there's, there's more to say on that too, which isn't specifically about um, those, those particular measures, but about the, the consciousness that, uh, that follows Labor around it. I don't reckon there's that many people in the broad mass of the working class that have all these illusions in Labor anymore. The people go, well, we'll vote Labor in and things will genuinely be, be better for people like me. But there is a fucking cohort who uh, are totally taken uh, by the Labor leadership. It's the fucking middle classes, people who read the monthly, people who publish the monthly. The Saturday paper. Saturday, yeah. All these people have massive illusions that like people who they read Jim Chalmers' essay that he, he starts with fucking quoting Heraclitus. Some journalist sent me a quote by Heraclitus, one of, one of the early pre-Socratic pre philosophers. So he starts with Heraclitus to make himself sound smart, which all of a sudden takes everybody in who reads that fucking garbage and then, you know, talks about values-based. Like, we haven't heard this every second decade since, you know, Karl Marx wrote Capital. Somebody's found a new way to tame the system, and this time it's Jim Chalmers. And isn't he erudite that he can quote the philosophers? I think that cohort, who some of them I think have probably been a bit taken aback by the, oh, I can't believe that they've been a bit stingy on this one. Like how on earth did uh, you know, this great Labor Party, it happens every time the Labor Party is elected, all this fanfare. And then next thing you know, oh, it's not really sure why they've gone down this path. But if you listen to the fuckers, they said we will be a government for the bosses, we'll be a government for business. They ditched, as we're I said. We're not woke. Remember that? As we're, well? we're not woke, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we ditched everything that uh, we did in 2019 because it pissed off rich people too much. And yet they get to reinvent themselves. Not in the eye. And again, I don't think working class people are that dumb, but there's a cohort of people who are dumb and are rich enough that they can be dumb. Like they can have the wool because it, none of it really matters. They might feel like it's, it's, it's a terrible shame that Australia is becoming unequal. We should, have, we should have a really mature, usually it comes like that, we need to have a really mature discussion. Conversation. A, a conversation, yeah, about the balance and how the balance doesn't get right. Meanwhile, the people at the top, they know what's going on. They, they don't bother with the conversations. They just rake in $250 billion for the top 50. They keep, it's not like the business council says, oh, you know what? 
we feel like the balance has gone a bit too far because workers' wages aren't going up enough. Let's sit down and have that discussion about renegotiating the industrial relations framework so that unions can have it. Like, they never say that. They're still trying to kick unions out of workplaces. It never stops. People. But it's the middle classes in the middle who always say, oh, I can't believe that. It's terrible. You shouldn't get too angry. You shouldn't fight about it. You just need to mature. But they also, because of that they, and how stupid they are, they just get so taken by whatever crap, like smart sounding economic argument gets thrown at them to say, oh, sorry, but we can't actually do anything for the poor and the working class right now. So they've just all swallowed hook, line and sinker the argument about inflation. It's why like, you know, listening to the Guardian podcast and the ABC in the lead up to the budget, they're like, oh, I don't envy Jim Chalmers. It's got a really tough job. That's why we're journalists, not politicians, you know, because they just actually think that these supposed natural economic constraints is what holds the Labor Party back from delivering for working class people, not just the fact that they don't care about working class people and all they want to do is serve the bosses. Or if they're, you know, a little bit taken aback, they're like, oh, this is this is actually really clever because, you know, I remember listening to, you know, PK talk about, you know, you've got, you can't underestimate how much labor, you know, they're still reeling from losing the 2019 election. So this is just really clever triangulation, you know, like they're, they're doing something, but they're also making sure they don't get wedged. Like the apologism for the Labor Party's refusal to just get rid of the stage three tax cuts. And I think a lot of journalists honestly thought that they would, like, oh, they're going to do it or maybe they'll wait a little bit later. Uh, and now the kind of apologism comes in. It's like, well, you know, they, they're really conscious of, you know, not being wedged, not being attacked for breaking their promises. Um, so, yeah, I, I think a lot of them can think, oh, this, this, is, this is really clever. Uh, you know, they've managed to, you know, outflank the Liberals, look like sensible economic managers. And as you said, you know, this layer of people are not really impacted by the cost of living crisis. So they do think it's just arms for the poor. There's enough arms there and they're really clever. Yeah, their commentary is, it's just a calculus of power. So there's no politics about it. It's, it's like, who's that guy? David Spears. Everything's a gotcha moment. Like he just wants, he just wants to find how he can get a gotcha. It doesn't matter who the politician is, try and get them to say something that potentially that they will reverse or Lee Sales on the ABC when she was on the 730 report, whose line of questioning by and large was, I've got someone from the Liberal Party in front of me. I'll ask them all the questions that the Labor Party is asking of them. Oh, now I've got someone from the Labor Party. Why don't I just ask all the, the line of attack of the Liberal Party? I'll just ask that in a really strenuous way. None of it's really about the politics underlying or undergirding any of it. The framework they all agree on, that the rich are, d- are deserving of their wealth, that the, the capitalists have a right to exploit labour, uh, that the system works fine if you work hard enough, that you shouldn't rock the boat too much. And within that, well, the framework with it, uh, within which the questions get asked is simply about who's clever enough to, to run the ship of state. And, and we bow down before them because we think that the smartest people, uh, and, they, and even if they're not smart, if they're cunning en- enough to get there, like a Scott Morrison, who nobody thought was smart like a Paul Keating, but he was a cunning and he was a liar, but they still fall down and bend over in front of him because he represents power to them. I think the other thing, because you write about, I think you write about that, that stuff, but quickly to go back to the thing about the people that are too dumb um, because of their own comfort, the irony in, J- in Jim Chalmers' monthly essay was that he literally quotes uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, uh, famous phrase. Um, uh, all, all, it's, I'll have to paraphrase it because it's something like, uh, 
independent minded men or, or men who think that they're independent are always slaves of some defunct economist. Well, that's the Canberra Press Gallery all over. It's the middle classes all over. The dull acceptance that there's only one way to run an economy and it is with capitalists in charge and parliamentary representatives who look after their interests by and large. And because That's yeah, the whole position. Because they all agree with the default neoliberal economics, they'd never challenge a, you know even a, a moment of that. They just are all form over content. Like with the Jim Chalmers essay, I remember listening to the Guardian's podcast and it's just like three people fawning over Jim Chalmers and just saying how nuanced he is. Like it's the most nuanced piece of writing they I've ever so read. They are so fucking dumb. I mean, can you get a dumber readership than the monthly? I just don't think there is. And dumber editors. Like the, if you go to a pub any, any day of the week, anywhere in the country, you will find some drunk fucking bum telling you about how they've discovered the secret to running the world better. And often they've got a few insights. But Jim Chalmers is no different to that. And these people just say, oh, well, You've got a suit and a tie and you're close to power. Like have a few pages in our venerated monthly magazine and we'll just, we'll just let you say it. And, and then people will lap it up as though there's something new about it. How dumb can you be? I, I just I wish someone would give red flag the sort of resources that these fucking morons have because I think we could, uh, our reach could go uh, well far and wide. Um, there you go, people. Subscribe to Red Flag. Yeah, give, give, give us your dumb. fucking money. So, <laughs> <laughs> we, want to, we want more readers. <laughs> and honestly, the, our analysis has been good. Um, we've got one up right now about the budget that just cuts through a lot of this bullshit, uh, which is very healthy. One of the big issues is housing, and it's not really dealt with in the budget. Obviously, the minor increase to rent assistance is not going to actually help the uh, vast majority of people who, or even the people on uh, as job seeker, afford the ridiculous rental prices. Um, yeah, what do you guys think? Well, hard to agree. Um, capital city asking prices for, for units are up more than 22% a year. Homes, houses, 13%. 33%, about a third over three years, astronomical price increases that we're seeing. But it's sort of, if you think about it, it's like that's, that's a function of a dysfunctioning system. We've, we've got something that everybody needs that should be a human right, shelter, and they've turned the market for it into an absolute casino with capital gains tax discount, negative gearing, all the incentives for people to speculate and to generate massive amounts of individual wealth for themselves out of this thing. And that's obviously the real solution is actually why do we have a housing market at all? Housing should be a human right. But on this more basic stuff, uh, the much lower level stuff that um, the media talks about, like Labor decided that they were going to prioritise landlords over renters when they dropped any talk about uh, reforming or getting rid of negative gearing, anything like that. And this is one of the issues where there actually is a little bit of contestation. The Greens have come out um, and are threatening to potentially block Labor's uh, housing bill in the Senate and they're calling for things 
uh, like rent caps, uh, which, you know, most other political parties aren't talking about. Um, but, you know, if you actually think about it right now, rent caps, uh, what does it mean to ca- cap rent now? Uh, rent now? Uh, cap it at historic highs. So even this is like so unambitious, but this is seen as the hard, hard left in the mainstream political debate about, you know, what is a serious crisis for renters, increasingly a crisis for mortgage holders as well. It will be interesting to see if they actually do end up voting down this bill uh, in the Senate. And I think they're going to cop a lot of criticism if they even delay it. They already are. Labor have come out on the offensive to attack them for, you know, I hate that expression, uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, But I think for anyone who considers themselves a leftist, the main criticism of the Greens should not be, uh, you know, that they won't collaboratively work with the government. The main criticism should be that they do that far too much. That's their entire, uh, you know, operation. Uh, you know, their entire approach to this Labor government is how to be as collaborative as possible. So it would be refreshing to see the Greens vote against uh, this housing bill, the Labor Party's housing bill, um, because this would actually uh, represent, you know, taking some opposition to uh, this total whitewashing of the budget, you know, letting the Labor Party get away with this symbolic gestures towards these issues. Actually, if someone came out and said, this is totally inadequate. It's a farce to let this thing uh, go through. Uh, would be to spit in the face of the people that need to see real action on the housing crisis. So I am dubious about the Greens' capacity to vote that down because so far they've actually waved through every single one of those ass covering bills. Uh, mm-hmm. Most uh, importantly, uh, the Labor Party's environmental bill. Because it's just the it's the classic role that the Greens play right in any <laughs> Labor government is the Labor Party stares them down and says we're going to try and pass this thing. It's a piece of crap. <laughs> you know, they look at the Greens in the eyes and they say, "Are you going to flinch? Like, you know, you have to pass this basically because otherwise we'll uh, attack you for the, exactly that. You know, um, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good or letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Is the other way around? No, it is that. Um, Well, another aspect of the Labor Party's budget is making provisions to meet the target to build nuclear submarines for the as part of the AUKUS Pact. Obviously, overall, that's going to cost up to probably more than three hundred and sixty-eight billion dollars. But there's also bits scattered throughout the budget of um, building bases and some of the organisations that are going to oversee AUKUS, and you know, billions and billions going towards that. Yeah, what do we think about this? Well, they said you can't fix everything in one budget, yeah? And I guess it's true because they didn't need a budget to announce 368, up to $368 billion in spending on submarines. Um, so it, it is a lot of money. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people get that. I think there's the, the things you hear about in union meetings and people being campaigning for wage rises, that it, a lot of, for a lot of people it is a no-brainer that, uh, the government's not doing enough in certain areas, but yet it seems to be able to find, at the click of its fingers, hundreds of billions of dollars for this ex- extraordinary outlay. Um, I think it. I think it comes down to more. Well, well, there's two things. Like one, the media uh, narrative. If, I don't know if uh, your listeners saw some of the appalling coverage in the City Morning Herald and the Age. They had sort of a big red scare cam- campaign uh, running through Peter Harcher and some other um, dipshit who's cooked into the national security establishment about 
and, and, and a range of so-called experts, we need to be prepared for war within three years. Um, well, the, the threat of war is real, but clearly uh, nobody in the real world believes that because there's no funding for a war in the next four years in this budget and nobody's screaming about that. So they're trying to butter us up, clearly, and it's the liberal press that's been doing it, which I think is actually one of the more important considerations. Not just that there's a, sh- a shit ton of money now being spent that ought to be being spent on working class people to improve living standards, to improve people's dignity of life. But that after this four-year forward estimate period ends, the real money starts to flow through into these programs and the real mechanics of the, the northern bases, the, the training of the, the nuclear people through the universities, scientists, uh, the the, the ramp up towards war is going to be more and more. And, and when there's such an extraordinary expenditure, and not just ex- expenditure, but an extraordinary integration of the Australian military with the US military, the navies, the air forces, the armies, already with the signals directorates, etc., almost turning... Australia into basically a beachhead for US imperialism if, it, if it's going to wage a war against China, um, a forward position that it would retreat to out of the Philippines and Japan, which would be far too close. The sort of ideological offensive that I think we are going to see over the coming years uh, is going to be extraordinary. And, the, and if, if anybody has been to the United States to see the cultural and political effects of the valorization of military, the valorization of human sacrifice for the military-industrial complex, the flag-waving, which has already been part and parcel of this country for, for the better part of 20 years, have been ramping it up since uh, the East Timor intervention in 1999, um, or 98, uh, I can't remember which year it was. The, 99 or 98, um, that has already been ramped up to considerable degree. I, I can't imagine the sorts of offensives that we are going to uh, be faced with given the situation of a, a genuine threat be- precisely because Northern Australia will become a target because it will be the beachhead for US imperialism. That hasn't been really the case. When was the last time a power the size of China, uh, well, there's never been an occasion in Australian history that a power with the capacities of countries such as China has, any, has ever had any incentive or want or to seriously invade this territory. But they're going to create that situation. It's going to be a self-fulfilling loop if, if the United States keeps pressing its war, uh, its war games against China. I think that's probably the scariest thing. And most of it's off budget at the moment. Well, the Red Alert series that the City Morning Herald and the Age ran. That's what it was, yeah. Was truly hysterical. Uh, and I think it's important to say that it's actually about trying to prepare the population for the possibility of war between two uh, you know, massive superpowers, the kind of 
uh, powers, the size, you know, that kind of conflict we haven't seen since the end of World War II, and potentially for the first time, a war between two nuclear armed powers. And it's important to say that there's, there is a bedrock of opposition to that kind of thing. The Australian population at large are not uh, prepared or supportive of the prospect of uh, nuclear holocaust, which is what you know it could potentially be, or at the very least, uh, extremely dangerous regional war over something like Taiwan. And so that's why you get these kind of hysterical uh, front cover publications of the City Morning Herald of the Age, uh, because they have to start to make that push. Right now, they have to make the push to justify the obscene spending of $368 billion on submarines that are, they're, they're not defensive submarines, not that, you know, socialists support uh, spending money on uh, submarines that are just about defending the Australian coastline. Not, we're not for that either. But these submarines are designed to sit off the coast of China and target its mainland, um, while Chalmers and uh, Peter Hartcher and the pack of, uh, you know, pro-American imperialist ghouls are trying to sell us the idea that we should arm ourselves to our teeth to defend um, our barley uh, from tariffs, basically, which is, you know, all that the threat uh, constitutes <laughs> right now. Um, and that's $368 billion. It will probably be more like half a trillion dollars. And it's actually just the start uh, because, yeah, as you said, um, you know, this is a total integration Australia's or Australian imperialism is already very integrated into American imperialism. But, you know, for the Australian capitalist class, the ruling class, we've really arrived because we're really ahead of the pack. We're part of the quad. We're part of the um, important uh, team. Uh, and, you know, the whole north of Australia, as you said, is going to be a real beachhead for a future conflict. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the main point of all of this and the main horror is uh, the threat of war that it poses for the entire world, um, including for the Australian population. But I think it is worth saying that, you know, as this whole thing ramps up, there are going to be increasing costs um, for the Australian economy. They're going to continue to put billions and billions, trillions of dollars into the military, into, into doing all of this, into building the bases that are necessary uh, and the war machines. And I think that does raise questions about um, the, you know, the working class population of Australia and, you know, things like wages and social welfare. And we're starting to see basically military spending being pitted against um, ordinary people's working conditions and lives. And that's going to, I think, escalate. We see a little bit of that with, you know, a budget that's willing to spend way more, like already billions more uh, than the supposed cost of living relief package on weapons. Uh, and is set to spend, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in the coming um, decades. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to separate those two issues in the future. That if if you are someone who is for uh, the increased living standards of working class people, if you're for genuine uh, social welfare, uh, healthcare, education, etc., if you're for a, a more equal society with greater standards of living for working class people, it's going to be very, very difficult to stand for those things if you are not opposed to this imperial project because the amount of resources that are going to go in and resources not simply, as we say, monetary resource, but the ideological resources that are going to go in to convince people that their brothers and sisters in these other countries, or in particular China, uh, they're working class brothers and sisters who are, who are doing exactly the same thing that they're doing, struggling to survive for a living, working, trying to put food on the table, that that's their number one enemy and they should go and wage war 
for those 50 billionaires or for the national security establishment as it is in Australia um, in their interests, well, that's, it's going to be a hell of an offensive. And, and for the more people that buy that, the more people will be prepared to sacrifice those living standards. And that's what you, that's what you see in the United States. If people, anyone who hasn't been there, it's anyone, more to the point, people have been there understand how frightening that society is precisely because is often the most, uh, some of the, well, the poorest, most destitute people are often the people who are wanting to fly that flag the highest. Not all of them, obviously, but the ideological influence that has been uh, won not just by the government, but by Hollywood, etc. Um, it's 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 a hellscape that country. And that's the whole project of nationalism, really. Um, not only uh, in trying to get some buy-in for the project of imperialism, and you know, potentially workers being sent off to kill and be killed, um, you know, in the name of their state, um, but also that you know there is this thing called Australia whether or not you're a worker, whether or not you're middle class, whether or not you're Gina Reinhardt, a billionaire, we all have something in common vis-a-vis some enemy and we all have to make sacrifices, some of us more than other, others, either to you know, fund something like the AUKUS submarine deal um, or to you know, get a hold of inflation um, or whatever it is. So I think that ramping up of nationalism um, in, the, in the coming years is going to be really important to that project um, uh, of you know potentially a war with China. It's why it's uh, important. That I think this will open up different fronts of uh, of a fight against militarism in Australia. Potentially, I mean, one obvious thing is the the budget actually contained millions of dollars um, going towards universities to create places for, as you said, for uh, nuclear scientists. So already, it's like the the university sector, which is you know completely cut the arts to smithereens and. Um, has you know has been, suffered a whole series of, of budget cuts and cuts to staff over the last few years, but they can find millions and millions of dollars uh, to you know um, facilitate this AUKUS program. I think similarly in for, especially for the labor movement, it's important to uh, to start to think about these questions and and yeah put forward a really clear argument against militarism and AUKUS. Um, both on the basis that we don't want workers to have to die in some uh, fucked up. Uh, imperialist war, but also on the basis that this is a massive drain of resources that could be going to improving the lives of people uh, right here. I mean, one in, one very uh, inspiring and, and good moment recently actually was in Port Kembla where the Trades and Labor Council uh, for their May Day march on May 6th had a, a march um, through the streets. Lots of people went down from Sydney as well to basically state um, their opposition to the potential nuclear submarines being built there. And, um, you know, in, for a lot of people, this was opposition to the AUKUS Pact generally and to the, the drive to war that's um, occurring in the Australian ruling class. Yeah, and a lot of the speakers at that May Day demo, which was certainly the biggest May Day demo that I've seen in the Illawarra before, lived there for a couple of years, um, made the point that there's a really proud tradition of working class opposition to war in Australia. Actually, in Port Kembla itself, you know, whether it was draft resistors, you know, getting in the way um, of, you know, trains sending conscripts up to Sydney during the Vietnam War, 
the actual port was shut down um, to uh, free a draft uh, resistor uh, from jail. So, um, you know, it's early days, obviously. There's not really a movement to speak of. There's a beginning of a movement against AUKUS. And I think uh, both taking a stand against the build-up towards conflict and really importantly linking that to the class questions of all of this $368 billion, half a trillion, whatever it's going to be in the end, much larger than that, is going to come at the expense of working class people in Australia. And I reckon compare it again to these fucking small little, small little liberals and the establishment liberals, like the people that run the universities, for example, the sort of people who have read Jim Chalmers in the monthly and probably give him an honorary doctorate at some point in the future just to be surrounded by power themselves. The mission statement, I'd love to read the mission statements that behold the enlightenment values that we stand for, et cetera. As soon as there's a couple of bucks to be (laughs) in on the action of weapons of mass destruction, flying around trying to get in on the action, Great! behold our enlightenment roots in in the great learned traditions from Spinoza and Descartes onwards, Uh, but give us the money to try and be part of this nuclear holocaust that potentially emerges and that that, uh, we'll we'll take any buck we can out of. I'd also like to read the mystery. I wonder what the fuck they've said to, um, and you'd probably have to, uh, to read Chinese to do it, what the hell they have said when they've been attracting all the Chinese students about diversity. You know, we love, you know, our university is a, it's a safe place of diverse thinking and we love you all. And now we're going to be a part of the action to fucking nuke your country if we can. Yeah, like, to go to they, war in three years. Honest about that? Like these fuckers that run these, you know, and it's that same fucking cohort, same small little liberals and establishment liberals. They're not, they, the people that run the universities are not your middle class liberals. These people are establishment You're millionaires. <laughs> Some of the best paid bosses in the country. Yeah. And they're not even particularly progressive, even on, you know, <laughs> in smaller liberal terms. So. No, no, but I, I guarantee you they, 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 many of them would believe that uh, the so-called council culture is the greatest threat to Western civilization as they're participating in the build-up to what could be World War Three. Yet someone standing up against racism is... The greatest purveyor of violence in the university system these days. Fucking jokes. Mic drop. Our comrades across the world. Well, obviously, the budget is not going to save workers in this country, and the Labor Party isn't. Um, but uh, you know, it raises the question of what can, and I think class struggle on our side is what's been missing, right, for the last um, few decades. Like, there's been a massive offensive from the ruling class, but our side hasn't been able to really um, win much. And you see that particularly now with the, like, pressures of inflation and a real ruling class offensive um, that our, you know, workers are going backwards massively. And it's partly because the unions, you know, haven't been able to um, win serious fights around wages, um, you know, for years now. Yeah, well, if you you read the, Stuff that the AC, the, the Australian Council of Trade Unions put out in response to the budget, and this is the, the umbrella organisation, the, the so-called voice of, of unionised workers, or even uh, they embellish themselves a little bit, the voice of all workers around the country. It's just ALP talking points. Um, there's, there's nothing in here. It, it's sort of like, oh, it's a good start and more to be done. Well, that's exactly what Jim Chalmers said. Uh, fixing up the mess of the last 
10 years. That's a financial talking point of the, of the treasurer. So it's not a working it's a talking point of workers. And we ought not be surprised at that either. I mean, we ought to be livid about it, but ought not be that surprised because Jed Carney, Greg Comba, I mean, this people, it's, it's a PR, it's, it's, half, it's a half a PR company for the ALP so that the people at the top of that organisation can be safely parachuted into the parliament having done their bit to assuage any uh, potential working class person that, uh, of, of the view that Labor might not be doing enough, um, or, or sorry, to convince them out of that position. So, I mean, I don't believe that many people look to that organisation much anymore, but to the extent that people do, like, this, it's, just a, it's just a liberal NGO, really, that repeats Labor's talking points, as I say. Yeah, the message from the ACTU does not give you much hope for the beginning of a fight against uh, Labor's budget or a fight just generally uh, around wages. And that's what we need to see, the rebuilding of trade union militancy. We need to see more strikes in this country. Um, and Socialist Alternative has been involved in some modest uh, but important struggles within the union to rebuild that tradition of left-wing militancy in this country. And I think right now one of the central questions is fighting to win above inflation pay rises and not thinking that we're going to get it from a Labor government, um, being very critical of the Labor government for not doing uh, more around this stuff. This is what we need to see from the unions. Um, so, you know, we've been involved in fighting to get uh, above inflation pay claims on uh, the log of claims in a whole bunch of unions. But really, where is the political leadership going to come from the will to actually have the kind of militant campaigns of ongoing strikes to win those kinds of above inflation pay rises, that is going to take a broader rebuilding of the socialist movement within the trade union movement. Uh, it's not something that we're going to see a signal coming from the ACTU. Yeah, if you think of some of the dangers that are associated as well, because on one hand, we know what the ruling class does. It doesn't, it doesn't stop. We mentioned earlier, it, it doesn't sit back and rest on its laurels once it's got to a certain point of wealth concentration. It's still thinking of new ways. Food Bank, uh, the NGO, reported last October, and things have deteriorated since then, that a third of households went without food um, to, pay, to pay a bill last year. 8.6 million people at some point in the year. And this is prior to things getting worse and worse and worse as they have over the coming months. And the people at the top look at that and say, Where's my fucking tax cut? Why aren't company tax rates coming down? Is the Labor government seriously considering not giving me my extra $9,000 a year if I'm over $200,000 a year? As we say, the Business Council isn't turning around and saying, oh, a third of households went hungry. Uh, we need to adjust the way that we do business to make sure people... No, they're looking to squeeze more and more and more. And they're being very, very successful. I think one of the big risks, um, pure speculation, I might add, but we saw a, a virulent uh, anti-labour, violent anti-labour street movement in Victoria in, at the end of 2021. Smashed up the CFMU offices, smashed up some of the CFMU people, attempted to 
destroyed. I, I was at it covering it, attempted to smash in Trades Hall, and apparently talking to the, 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 the caretaker there, it, it took a battalion of police to hold people back. Massive. This uh, is the anti-lockdown, anti-vax this is, Sorry, yeah, this is the anti-lockdown, anti-vax stuff. Some of it ideologically motivated around the anti-vax, but there was an economic component in there of small business owners who were virulently anti-lockdown because it was hurting their business. Who knows where this is with the, the interest rates going up, the, the Reserve Bank trying to slow the economy significantly, push up unemployment, drive uh, zombie firms and other businesses out of action to destroy demand so that uh, inflation comes down. If the unions are not spearheading a fight for working class living standards to go up, you can't rule out that another movement emerges among small business owners who are being utterly smashed, who lead a reactionary movement against, against what is it, wall-to-wall Labor governments, state and federal. Uh, people who otherwise might have to pull in behind a, tr- uh, a fighting trade union movement if we're fighting for working class demands. But in the absence of that, you can see what the sort of movement uh, that would be so-called for so-called people could possibly look like. Yeah, a reactionary mass mob uh, that's wanting to rip apart uh, social democracy and, and the trade unions. I don't know how high that risk is, but given that we've seen it on the street in the last couple of years, I don't think you can rule it out given the economic conditions. If, somebody's going to, if nobody else is going to give a lead, somebody out there might, and it could very well be the right that gives that lead and the space will be wide open for them if they do, I think. I mean, the other danger, I think, on, from the perspective of the union movement is because Labor's in, the union leadership are even softer on the government than they would otherwise be. I mean, yeah. um, when the Liberals are in power, not to say that the union movement have um, led massive, impressive fights against it, but there's definitely more uh, opposition. Like in New South Wales under um, Perite and before that Gladys Berejiklian, we did see you know the um, public sector unions begin at least a fight um, for higher wages and for other demands of the workforces. And I think you will see a lot of that kind of thing go deathly quiet in the face of Labor governments in the state and federally. And that's why what the, seeing the ACTU's uh, statement about the budget, which is basically just pretty celebratory of it, no criticism, um, puts all of the, potent, you know, the economic problems of Australia down to 10 years of the Liberals forgetting to mention the, you know, um, years of labor that we had before that, that also, um, you know, implemented a bunch of neoliberalism. Uh, I think that is a, a, a bad sign for, for the union movement. And it's one of the reasons, as Chloe said, that we really want to champion on, on this podcast and in Red Flag, uh, all of the instances of resistance um, of workers and all of the instances of socialists on the left within the union movement trying to push it to uh, take up more of that militant stand and just say, we are going to Go on strike, old school, you know, fight for wage rises because that's the only thing that I think is going to be able to turn around the kind of cost of living crisis that we're seeing right now. 
And you just look at the couple of examples where there have been some strikes. Like I know there was a big NTU mobilization in Melbourne recently. We had um, strikes, unfortunately, not a great deal come out of it at Sydney University. But every time there is a bit of a lead given um, uh, for workers to take industrial action, all of the balloting comes back with huge support for it, not just strikes, but I saw a ballot the other day come out of Macquarie University with uh, huge majority support for indefinite strikes. Uh, That's the kind of thing that unions could be doing in response uh, to inflation, eating away at wages, wages going backwards. Um, But that is going to have to be driven by a broader rebuilding of the union movement on a rank and file level. Um, And I think socialist politics has to be connected up with that um, to kind of break from uh, the union just wall-to-wall labourism and and backing of labour governments. Well, yeah, we'll finish it there, but there's obviously uh, a big fight on our hands going into the future against uh, the cost of living crisis and against things like AUKUS. To sum up, I mean, the cost of living crisis is ongoing. There's a massive class war going on right now. Um, It's a one-sided one at the moment. And actually, Labor's budget and their previous budget and every action they've taken since they uh, took government indicates which side they've chosen, which is the side of the ruling class and the bosses against uh, working class people in this country. Um, So yeah, the fight continues. Anyway, Ben, thanks heaps for joining us here in person in my attic. It's been great. Again, thanks. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's really coincidental. I was in the area anyway. I've been checking out a couple of handy earners over in Mossman for the portfolio. So (laughs) an easy stretch to get across here to... In order, yeah. In the West. That's fucking terrible. (laughs) (laughs) 